Okay, so whenever we come to a letter, we have to ask a few introductory questions, right? We need to figure out who's it from, where is it going, and why is it going where it's going. So you'd think it's such a small letter, it would be really easy to just figure out everything that's going on in it. But I swear, the smaller a letter is sometimes, the harder it is to figure out all the answers to those questions. So before we kind of unpack what Second John is all about, Let's just ask ourselves a few introductory questions. So, who is it from? Anybody? Anybody? Who dares? Who dares? Yes. John. How do you know? Because it, it says... Where? Uh, <laughs> I don't have my study Bible. You don't have your study Bible? Yes. Nathan the Prophet. Yes. Nathan the Prophet. No, it's not Nathan the Prophet. Okay, it only says, did you know, what, what, what? At the top it says the second letter of John. Yes, that is what, that is the title that's been given to us over a series of years and traditions, or tradition kind of says it's the second letter of John, but how do we know it's from John? Yes. The MacArthur Study Bible says the author is the Apostle John. Well, that's a really good way to figure that out. But how does MacArthur know that? Because it's the epistle. Because the content mirrors the other content of other books that John wrote. There we go. Now we're starting to figure this out. Okay, so uh, if you just had this, if you just had this letter, you, you'd ask yourself, how do I know who this comes from? Um, and it's, it's interesting. The only um, indication of the author we have is what? The elder. That's how he describes himself. So who is this elder, and how do we know it is the, the John that wrote 1 John and the John that wrote 3 John? Well, as Jackson pointed out, like the content is very similar, right? Um, and that makes a whole lot of sense. But let's just back up a little bit. Just notice, just from that, that title that he uses, it's a very significant way he refers to himself. Apparently, apparently he knew he needed minimal amount of information about himself to kind of indicate that he was writing, right? All he had to say was, the elder. Do you, um, do you ever have, like, people that talk to you that all they have to say is their first name? Oh, thank you very much. All they have to say is their first They don't have to tell you their middle name, their social security number, their address. They, all they have to say is their first name, thank you very much, because, why? Because they are well known to you, right? When, when I say... When I say, hey, i got to tell you something. Steve told me to tell you guys that uh, you need to stop messing up the cornerstone room. <laughs> Which Steve am I referring to? Am I referring to Rachel's older brother? <laughs> probably not, right? I'm probably referring to the most well-known Steve in your mind, and that would be Steve Swartz, right? When, when, <laughs> Steve Lawson. <laughs> Uh, illustrations don't work. But anyway, but notice all he has to say is, I am the elder. And they know exactly who he is because of how he sounds, right? Once again, back to Jackson's case. But notice also he apparently is someone that has considerable amount of authority over not just one church, but over multiple churches. So this isn't your typical elder. This isn't just any elder. This is an, a special elder, an, an exceptionally important elder who has authority over multiple churches. You know he's writing to a different church because, well, one, he's writing to them. And number two, he seems to be, from verse 13, writing from a different church or a different location from where they are at. Um, he had considerable authority across a number of different churches. And, and apparently he is... Uh, 
an elder among elders. He is the ch- one of the chief elders. He is an important elder. He's, he calls himself the elder, not just an elder, right? If we talk to Grant, if we talk to Mark, if we, if we talk to one of our elders, they would say, hey, I am an elder. But would Grant say, hey, I am the elder? No, because there's multiple elders. So who is this man who, who can claim such distinction and such importance? Uh, apparently, it's someone of note, right? And, and of course, as we have already been talking about, right, church history is pretty unanimous in saying that this is John, the brother of James, one of the disciples of Jesus, the son of Zebedee. And we know this from how it connects, as Jackson was saying, how it connects to the other letters, right? First um, John and Second John have a lot of similarities. Over half of the concepts that you find in Second John are found in First John. If you were this next week to go and read First John, you'd say, this sounds really familiar. Matter of fact, this helps me understand Second John. A lot of the same ideas, concepts that John talks about in First John are also in Second John. And we also know that 1 John, as we talked about when we went through 1 John in January, sounds a lot like the Gospel of John, right? Um, There are strong parallels between the Gospel of John and 1 John. Many of the same concepts that you find in 1 John are found in the Gospel of John. As a matter of fact, there are more commonalities between 1 John and the Gospel of John than there are between Luke and Acts than there are between Ephesians and Colossians, than there are between 1 Timothy and Titus. There, there are a lot of connections. So it sounds a lot like John. But this is also interesting, too. If someone was trying to pretend to be John, which sometimes people say this is somebody pretending to be uh, the Apostle John, if somebody was trying to pretend to be John, particularly in how they wrote 1 John, um, they did not only did they do a lot of parallels, but they also did kind of a lousy job. There are some ways in which John changes things to not totally, not totally copy himself. So we have an issue in 1 John and the Gospel of John of someone that sounds a lot like, a lot like the person who wrote the Gospel of John, but somebody who has enough freedom with the concepts that he is unpacking that he can kind of change things. For example, 1 John, God is love. But in the Gospel of John, God is, all right, Never mind. So, God, God is light. Yeah, so anyway, so, so he kind of, he varies concepts and themes. If you were just, all I'm trying to say is, if you were just trying to copy, if you were just trying to copy somebody and make people think you were that guy, you would have stayed a little bit closer to the content. But he has notable liberty. And then, of course, we find also um, that when we study the Gospel of John, we, we see one disciple noticeably left out, and that, of course, is John, the son of Zebedee. Every single gospel talks about the disciple John. He is one of the top three disciples in Jesus' inner, 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 inner circle. So it's very noticeable that the gospel of John wouldn't ever talk about John, the son of Zebedee. But it does talk about one individual, and that is the disciple who Jesus loved, right? And so that, of course, is how we have concluded that John is the one who wrote the gospel of John, and that's how we connect 1 John to John, and that's how we connect 2 John to 1 John. Bam. See, it's easy. Or you could just say, MacArthur told me. But I think it's helpful to talk through those things so that you know, hey, 
This is not just written by anybody. This is clearly written by um, the Apostle John, the son of Zebedee. And that, that means it was written by an eyewitness to Jesus, a disciple of Jesus who was with Jesus and saw the resurrection and preached the gospel accordingly. That's, that's, that's pretty easy believe it or not. That's the easy issue in, in 2 John. The, the more tricky issue is who is John writing to? Anybody want to hazard a guess without looking at your study notes? Who, who is John writing to in 2 John? Yes? Um, the lady and her children. The lady and her children. Anybody else want to hazard another guess? Does, who thinks lady and her children? Nobody thinks. Okay, so... Um, Hold strong, okay? Just say, I am convinced by the word of God that it is the lady and her children. Just say that. Just say that. Just say that. I, I am convinced, though the world stand against me, I will stand on. Yeah. Come on. Anybody else? Anybody else? Anybody else want to say lady and her children? Come on. Come on. Lady and her children? Who else? Any other lady and her children? People? Any, anybody? 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 Nope. Nope. He's, he's halfway in between. You're, you're just a mister. Indes- indecisive. Indecisive. Okay. All right. So there are two... I, I'm sorry. I really enjoy. I really enjoy this. Um, there are two basic options that you can have in how you understand who wrote or who this was written to. The first option is it was written to a local or an actual local lady and her children. Right. The other option is this is referring to a local church figuratively. So let's go to the next slide here. So. Go to, there you go. So there's the two options, right? A local lady or a local church. Um, let's just unpack a little bit about why people would say a local church. Um, next, uh, the church is known as the bride of Christ. So that's, that's an idea there. Next, um, John oversaw a few local churches. We see in Revelation 2 and 3 that he, obviously, we have, we have that idea of him overseeing many churches at the same time. Uh, false teaching is a church issue more than a home issue, right? Why would John be writing to a home about false teachers? It seems more like he'd be writing to a church. Um, next slide. This letter is without specific names. So to the elect lady sounds a little bit too nonspecific, right? Especially when you turn over as you will in a couple hours, I'm sure, to 3 John, and you read three people mentioned by name in 3 John. So it's like, okay, this seems a little bit too general. It's, it seems like it is written to a church that is being referred to figuratively. Um, next, um, the letter shifts between the singular and the plural. So uh, there's some question there. Is he really writing to an individual, or is he writing to a group of people? It kind of sounds more like he is writing to a group of people. And then, of course, wouldn't verse 5 be inappropriate if John, the Apostle John, is writing to this elect lady and he says, we should love one another. (laughs) Now, I will say, I think in context, he would say that to the elect lady because he's not talking about a romantic kind of love. Um, He is talking about obeying the commands of Christ that believers should love one another. But yes, some people would say it is inappropriate for him to say that. What about uh, the case for a local lady? Uh, The church is never called the lady. Interesting, right? Here you have this massive, massive metaphor for the church presented here with no 
no parallel in the rest of the New Testament. Uh, it's called the Bride. It's called sorry, that's fine, that's fine. It's called the Bride, uh, called betrothed, but we're never called the Lady of Christ, which is a term that is really used to uh, kind of. Um, indicate a woman who is kind of over a household, uh, the, the home keeper of a house. That's what the lady is. Um, another reason people would see, that, see this as a local lady is um, this letter appears to be written in kind of this common personal letter style. So actually, 3 John and 2 John, this is how letters were. The New Testament letters like Romans and Corinthians, those were not typical first century letters. Those things were long. Usually, a first century letter was written on one little sheet of paper. They had these little sheets, and it was pretty short and had pretty sparse details. So these were actually very typical personal letters. And so it seems like it was written in the style of a personal letter. It wasn't written like a church treatise or something like that. It seems to be written to an individual in its style alone. Um, Next um, the elect lady might actually be her name. She, her name might be Kyria, or however you pronounce that. Some people want to put uh, uh, to Electa, to Electa the lady, but that doesn't make any sense because her sister in verse 13 is also called the Electa. So uh, you can't probably call that her name, but it could be that her name is actually Lady. Um, some of you might have names that have interesting meanings as well. Um, get off her back about that. Uh, so next slide. Um, this is a letter written uh, both to uh, this lady and her children. So, you know, going back to the, the, the cons or the, the pros for the local church, right? It shifts between singular and plural, and it's, it's talking about um, loving one another. Technically, John is not just writing to this elect lady, but verse 1 says he's writing to the lady and her children. So, is it, I don't think there's another one. There is. Ah, okay, um, there, final, final, final argument that some people would make for a local lady. It is most natural to read, to read this letter as if it was written to a lady and her children. Matter of fact, let me just tell you this. Before you make your choice, you have to interpret this letter as if it was written to a lady and her children. If you're going to interpret it well, right? Even if you're going to say, I believe it was written to a local church, but you have, to, you, have to, you have to receive it as if it were written in like a style to a local lady. So that's how it's to be interpreted, right? So there you go. There's your options. Who, who's on the local church side of things? Who's on the local church? Local church, local church, local church, local church. Local lady, anybody local lady? Local lady, stand firm, stand firm. Even, even if, even if the world stands against you. Okay, so here it is. Here's the shock. Ready? I like local lady better. Sometimes the plain sense, the, the plain sense, if the plain sense makes perfect sense, seek no other sense, right? Um, I do understand the idea behind the church, but at the same time, I'm like, it's, it makes plain sense to me that it is a local lady and her children. And once again, you have to interpret it uh, through this kind of lens anyway, so I would just interpret it that way. Yes? How would you explain verse 5 then? Verse 5? Yeah. Is that what you're hung up on? Uh, I'd explain it like this. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but one that you had from the beginning, that we love one another. I would say he is sounding very John-like in how John is always saying we should love one another as a response to the gospel. 
and loving one another doesn't necessarily mean a romantic kind of love. That's 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 the Christian life. Uh, John is called the apostle of love, and you live out the implications of the gospel through basically love. You love God and you love other people. So what he is saying there is not something inappropriate, especially because her kids are listening to the same letter. <laughs> it's not inappropriate. It is him doing what John always does. Um, that's exactly how he addresses Gaius as well in Third John, and that's basically his argument in First John as well. How do you know you're a true Christian? That we love one another. So that'd be my response to that. Honestly, that's the easiest. That's the easiest. Uh, pro for a local church to deal with. My, my, the hardest part for me is the lack of names. I'm not totally sold on the fact that her name is Lady, but that's me. So, um, change anybody's mind? No? Nobody? 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 Okay, all right, that's fine. Uh, but I, I think it is important for you all to understand that um, it's not just that you should be concerned about false teaching in the local church. You should also be concerned about what comes into your home. You should also be concerned about the kind of media you're consuming. Um, be, before before we, we see cultural, cultural trends in our world, it's usually first coming to us in the form of the music we listen to and the movies we watch. And we should be guarded. We should be very guarded in the kind of people, teachers, we are hosting in our homes, in our hearts, and in our churches, right? So all of these things are true. It, it really doesn't change. It doesn't change the meaning of the letter at all. Um, this letter is written. It's a letter written, basically. If we were to use the historical situation that I, I find a little bit more compelling, it's basically just John responding in letter form to this well-known lady in the local church who may at this time be a widow. Her husband may be dead. She has some children, and John is, has met them most recently, maybe they were traveling through John's part of Ephesus or something like that. But they've, they've met John. They've talked to him about all the things that are happening in this church of theirs where their mother is at. And they're also telling John that, hey, these false teachers that you warned us about in First John, they have been coming around. And our mother is struggling with whether to be hospitable to them. You know, because the, the Christian virtue of loving people and showing showing them hospitality, uh, should we be hospitable to, to people that tell us something different about Jesus? Should we still be loving towards them? So John writes to clarify the situation. Now, if you want to apply that to the church, it'd be very easy to do that, but that's, this is how John wants to kind of frame it, as if this is false teaching coming to a house. That's how you should think about this. Um, John's, Second John's basic purpose is, as you see here, protection, right? It is a letter for the protection of love. And once again, what is love referring to? We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute, but it is a letter for the protection of love. Love is basically the recognizing the, the truth about God, what he has done for us in Christ, and the obedient response to it, right? The gospel is God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That is the gospel of John, John 3.16, right? And that message, that good news, results in love, obedient response to the gospel in your life. Now, just really quick here, in in, in these days, um, the church was kind of, the church uh, was supported by the ministry of traveling teachers. And come on in, Imani, come on in, have a seat. 
um, these teachers couldn't stay in local inns because oh, I don't want to say this. So you know the story about the you know Bethlehem. We we've been learning about how it wasn't an innkeeper. But that innkeeper always gets a bad rap, doesn't he? Man, cruddy, cruddy innkeeper, what are you doing? Right? <laughs> there's, there's actually historical precedent for that. Innkeepers were known for being crooks. Inns were a place where you got lice and fleas. Inns were a place where you went to get robbed. You didn't want to go to inns. You went and stayed with family members. So what does the church do when they're... they're they're, they're all scattered and they're, they're looking for teachers to come. They would host these teachers and show love to them. That was how they supported the gospel. Hospitality means what? The love of strangers. It is, it is helping them. But the problem was, in the first century world, there were these false teachers going around, spreading this news that wasn't totally, you know, lock and step synced up with the truth of the gospel that they had heard. What was the false teaching that they were spreading? Well, we pick up hints from it, uh, of it from Second John and First John, but it appears to be some sort of, you know, pre-Gnosticism. Gnosticism is all about knowledge, having this secret knowledge and secret spiritual experience. Gnosticism um, downplayed um, the, the flesh, the, the physical nature of the world, and it, and it emphasized the spiritual, right? The world, the flesh, doesn't matter. It's all about the spiritual that matters. And so what did that, what did that lead to? It led, led to Gnostic teachers downplaying sin. It's not so bad. It's just your body. Don't worry. It's all about your mind, right? They downplayed sin. And they also downplayed the very fact that Christ came in the flesh. You see that in verse 7, right? They do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. He didn't come because the flesh is icky. The flesh is gross. God wouldn't do that. Right? Downplayed sin, downplayed the significance of Christ's coming to make a sin sacrifice. That's what they downplayed. And of course, John here is writing all of his letters are kind of a response to this kind of false teaching. The Gospel of John was written to, uh, written to reveal the good news of Jesus, as it says in John 20, 21, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Uh, the Gospel of John was written to provide the message of eternal life. First John was written to provide assurance of eternal life. How do I know that I'm truly a believer? Read First John. It gives you the assurance through various tests. Matter of fact, you see First uh, John 5, verse 13 says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So the Gospel of John is to bring you the message of eternal life. First John is written to give you assurance that you have eternal life. What is Second John for? Second John is written to provide protection to both the message and your assurance. Because if you mess with the message of eternal life, you're also messing with your assurance of eternal life. So that is what Second John is written for. It's written to provide protection. A letter for protection of love. Matter of fact, as you see in Second John 8 all the way down through 11, this is the, the main thrust of the letter. Watch yourselves so that you 
Do not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Here it is. We are here to protect the message and the assurance of the message. That is why Second John is written. But you'll notice that Second John does not start just with that warning, right? There are how many verses? There are six verses before he even gets to his letter of protection. First, let's go to the next slide here. So that's, that's the final thing in his letter. The, before that, he also gives the dynamic of love. He wants to describe the nature. You'll see what I'm doing here in a minute. It's very confusing, maybe to you. Uh, before he gets to the protection of love, he, he describes what love is. He, he describes how you know you have it. First, we need to be clear on what love actually is. And before we start to talk about protecting it. And before he even gets to that, before he even gets to that in the beginning of Second John, he gets to the source of love. Where does love come from? So, so here you go. There you go. So he kind of works towards the protection of love. And we're going to kind of flip this list to go in his actual order. This is our basic outline. Uh, the letter uh, for the protection of the message and assurance of the gospel. First, we're going to talk about the source of love, the dynamic of love, and then the protection of love. So I just wanted you to see that. First off, let's go to the next slide. Here it is, the source of love. The source of love. Where does love start? Where does this Christian love, obedience come from? John encapsulates all of the Christian life into the term love, but where does that love come from in you? Where does it begin? Where does it originate? He, he has this warm greeting to this lady in verse 1. Notice what he says there, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Interesting, interesting. Where does this warm greeting come from? Where does this love come from? How does John, why does John love this woman at all? Well, because of the truth. Because the message of the gospel has come to John and has also come to this lady and has totally transformed their life. There are two key words in this, in this whole entire small little second epistle. It is love and it is truth. Matter of fact, you see those two words, right? At the end of verse 3, in truth and love. Love happens in verse 1, verse 3, verse 5, verse 6. Truth comes verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4. Truth and love, right? But love comes from the truth of the gospel. What is the source? What is the start of the love that comes from the gospel? Well, it is in the realization, the revelation of the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ. As it says in 1 John, you should turn over to 1 John. It's just one page away in my Bible. 1 John 4, 1 John 4, 9. Uh, John unpacks what he is talking about here. Where does this love comes from? Uh, come from? Where does it come from? Verse 
9 of chapter 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Notice this truth. The truth of the gospel is made known to us and also abides in us through the power of the Spirit. That's what John is saying there. It it abides in us through the power of the Spirit. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his Holy Spirit. Not only do we have the message of love directed towards us, but we also have the Holy Spirit empowering us to believe that message. You could say it like this. The Christian is, uh, is surrounded by love. Uh, the knowledge of God's love for them in the person of Christ and also the, the power of God's love working in them through the Holy Spirit. God has loved me, you say, so much, how can I not love a stranger? If God has shown me such love, how can I not be loving and long-suffering and patient and kind to other people in my life? The source of the gospel comes from God, from the truth of the gospel. That's where it comes from. And that's what he is talking about here as well. You'll see, you'll, you'll, you'll see it there in verse 3, right? Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God, the Father, and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. And notice, once again, just to go back, verse 1 and 2, he loves them because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. But I love verse 3 there especially, grace and mercy They're the expressions of God's love towards us, aren't they? They're expressions of God's love. Mercy is what you desperately need. Mercy is God not giving you what you deserve. And that comes to you as an expression of God's love. Grace is God giving you what you don't deserve, right? Not only am I not giving you what you deserve, I'm also going to give you what you don't deserve. By the way, that that whole entire idea kind of unpacks what we know of, of the idea of propitiation, right? God doesn't give you what you deserve. He doesn't pour his wrath out on you. He pours his wrath out on Jesus Christ in your place. He doesn't give you what you deserve. But also, he gives you grace in Christ Jesus. Not only does he not give you what you deserve, he gives you what Christ deserves. That's what propitiation is. It's, it's not just wrath redirected. It's wrath redirected so that love and grace and mercy can be poured down on you. That is, what, that is what you get in the gospel. You get mercy and grace. And of course, this results in what? It results in peace. Peace with God that results in peace between you and your fellow men. Why? Because God has shown so much grace and love and mercy towards me. How can I withhold grace and mercy from others? No, I, I, I must love in the way God has loved me. This is the source of love. This is where it comes from. But let's look at the, the next thing, the dynamic of love. The dynamic of love. This is a tricky word, but I was struggling with how to kind of express it. And then I just kind of like the idea dynamic because it, it expresses this, this action, this movement, how it functions. That's, that's why I, I like this. How, how do you know you're loving as you have been loved? If, if love is from God, 
And everyone who knows God is, is born of God and loves God and their fellow men. How do, how do I know? How do I know? You have this dynamic of love. Um, the start, the supply, the source of the, the love of the gospel uh, results in action in your life. Or we could say it this way, it is impossible because of the truth outside you and the spirit within you to remain the same. You must be a forever changed person if the truth of the gospel is true in you, if you are born again. And notice what he says there, as we've already talked about a lot, but verse 5, he says, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but one that you had from the beginning, that we love one another. This, this is something that you have known as a believer from the beginning. What is he talking about there? Now, it could be the beginning of all creation because we've, 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 expre- we've received the gracious love of God in some way in all, in all common grace. But it seems like this is mainly speaking about just the, the truth that you know about God from day one of your Christian life, right? You've, you've, known, you've known that God is love from day one. And you've, you've had this kind of imperative, this command over your life that you should love others, from day one of your conversion. That is what it is, from the beginning. And as a matter of fact, your entire Christian life, because you've been so transformed by the love of God, is, is just a joyful submission to the reality of what God has done for you, right? I, I, love, I love freely because God has chosen to love me. And now notice, notice how love works in your life. There is a, a dynamic to it. You walk in love because Christ has commanded you to love. Notice the kind of the cycle nature, the cycle nature of these commands. Let's go to the next slide here. Um, next slide here. First, you, you keep obeying this command that you have received from the beginning. Right? There's no new fancy way to live the Christian life. No, it, this has been, this is the basic imperative of the Christian life from the very beginning, and it will continue to be so. But then notice what is the commandment? What is the commandment that we've had from the beginning? Next slide. Well, that we love one another, verse, the second half of verse 5. That we love one another. But how do you define love? How do you define love? Is it a feeling? Is it an emotion? Uh, what, what does it mean to love? Next slide. He defines love. Love is obeying Christ's commands. You see that in verse 6, right? This is love, that we walk according to his commands. And then you're like, okay, what are his commands? And the next slide. What are his commands? Those things that you've heard from the beginning. You see that second half of verse 6? It's going around and around and around. This is the dynamic of love in your life. Basically, you love because Christ has commanded you to love, but you love because Christ has loved you. And you can't get away from this. Notice, biblical love is not a feeling. Biblical love is not based on the loveliness of the person you are loving. Biblical love is rooted and sourced in the God who has first loved you while you were unloving and you were unkind. It's rooted in God's love. You love because Christ has commanded it. You love because Christ has loved you. But you also love because Christ has loved them. If Christ can love them, I better love them as well. You are living out, basically. Your entire life is living out the implication of the incarnation, right? This, Christ came down, put on flesh to show love towards me, to receive the wrath 
that I deserved and to give me the grace that he deserved. So I'm going to live that out through obedience. And, and just notice this, it goes around and around and around, right? We, we define true biblical truth by something that expresses itself in love. If your truth is not expressing itself in love, it's not biblical truth. And at the same time, if your love departs from truth, it is not truly Christ's love. So it goes around and around, and if that doesn't make sense to you, welcome to the club. I worked through those verses over and over again. Like, what is he talking about? He's just going in a circle. Why is he doing this? Because that is the dynamic of love. Now let's talk about the protection, the protection of love. Let's see if I can get through this in four minutes. The protection of love. Um, why all this time talking about uh, the source and the description of love? Well, because false teachers are coming into the church, into the homes, cutting out the legs from underneath truth and the the implications of that truth in your life, right? The, the truth of the gospel is at stake by what they are. They are misleading people in. They are not confessing the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. That seems like a truth that is very, uh, very distant from just loving, loving your, your fellow believers. But actually, that has massive implications. If God didn't love me in this way, then, then, then the way I live it out is, is very different. Remember, these men were probably denying sin's sinfulness, right? You don't have a problem with sin. It's not like God came in the flesh to die on your, on your behalf. That's what they were denying. They were denying like the, the, the bloody requirement for your sin. They were, they were diminishing sin's sinfulness. They were lying about the seriousness of your sin and the seriousness of the fact that God put on flesh to pay the penalty for your sin. That, that totally changes the way you live your life. I want you to just notice a few, thing about, a few things about these false teachers. This was interesting to me. Just notice what these false teachers are like. Now, we might not struggle with the exact same false teachers that they were struggling with, but there are a lot of commonalities between the false teachers we have here in Second John and the ones we may experience in our life. The first thing, notice how new and flashy they are. They're new and exciting. That's what we see in verse 7, right? They've gone out into the world. Verse 9 also says they're going ahead, this, this idea of running ahead, right? Uh, they, have, they seem to have all of the answers. They're, they're making a splash. They're really exciting. They seem to have this secret information that nobody else has. Man, if I could just get that secret information, I could be like them who... Because they have all the answers. Their lives are totally together. They're, they have the best wife. They have the best home. They have the best car. And if I could just get this secret information, maybe I could be like them as well. By the way, usually what happens is this is just a worldly message packaged in Christmas or, or Christian wording. That's all false teachers ever do. They have a worldly message about success and selfishness that they package with Bible quotes. But, but really, this is what they are. They look very new and exciting. You ask yourselves about the, the teaching you experience in the world. Is, is this something that I can easily see from the Bible? Or are they twisting things a lot? 
ask yourself, uh, does their message conflict with the truth of the gospel, the, the sinfulness of sin, the glory of the incarnation? Have they been around for a long time, or are they just showing up and suddenly very popular? That's things you should ask. They're new and exciting. Not necessarily a bad thing to be new and exciting, but just notice that's usually what false teachers look like because they don't last for very long. They never last for very long. Another thing about these false teachers, they are ego-centered. I wonder if I spelled this right. Anyway, there, there's a dash in there, maybe. <laughs> You'll see. Uh, they are ego-centered. It's all about them. You see this in verse 9, right? You see this in verse 9. Uh, no, maybe not. Uh, they're going ahead. They're going, where did I see that? I saw it in verse 9, I swear to you. Oh, yes, yes. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide. Going ahead means leading the pack, right? They're running a race and they're in front. They're, they're, it's all about them. Matter of fact, you'll see this in 3 John. There's this man called Diotrephes who, as it is describing him in verse 9, likes to put himself first. They like to be in charge. They like to be the big person on campus. They like to be important. That's who they are. They're quick to diminish Christ and his significance, and they're quick to elevate themselves. Here's some questions you can ask. Are are they always the heroes of their stories? Are they quickly angered? Are they quickly hostile? Are they quickly resentful when you start asking them about themselves? They are ego-centered. It's all about them. Another thing about them, they are incarnation deniers. This is very specific in verse 7. Do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Why do they deny these things? Because the thought that that's how sin uh, needs to be punished is absolutely reprehensible to them. Because that says that they have sinned as well. That they have a serious problem with sin as well. They are incarnation deniers. Also, they are reward robbers. You see this very startling in verse 8. It doesn't necessarily mean that they rob you of salvation, but they may rob you of the rewards of salvation. We see, watch yourself so that you may not lose what we have worked for. Not only is it robbing you, but also those people who have shepherded you, they could rob. How do they do this? They rob by uh, kind of blinding unbelievers to the gospel even more. Look at, the, look at, look at that guy. He's, a, he's an idiot. I'm never going to be a Christian. They weaken, they weaken the, the, the young uh, in faith. They undermine good intentions. That's what they do. They, they're reward robbers. And another thing, they're also resource rerouters. Uh, they, they can take funds that were intended for good, intended for the gospel, and use it for their own ego-centered uh, aims and efforts. And many teachers do this. They teach a false gospel, and they get little faithful ladies who just want to serve Jesus to call in on that 800 number to fully support their ministry. That's what they do. They are resource rerouters. Hey, you need to actually pay me. Uh, now give me your credit card number. That's what you need to do. One last thing, they are spiritually empty. You see that in verse 9, right? They do not have God. This is why they must be so flashy. This is why they have to be so zealous for their own name, because that's the only name they have. They do not have God on their side. What should you do to protect yourselves from such people like this? Well, there's a few applications here. Number one, know the truth. Number one, apply the gospel daily so that you'll know it 
daily. Number three, watch yourselves. Verse eight, watch yourselves. That's one of the, the, the few commands in this letter. Watch yourself. Watch your music and watch your movies because what is in the media today is going to be in the culture tomorrow. And watch yourself. You don't want to think like the world. Believe like the world. Value what the world values. Value the cross. Value the truth of the gospel. That's what you want to do. Be guarded. Watch yourself. And also, be okay with distancing yourself from people, from teachers that don't speak the truth. Just tell yourself once again, again and again, whenever you are confronted to, to hold up a book or hold up a certain person as, as, as particularly high, just challenge yourself. Do I want to follow this book or do I want to follow Christ? Which one do I want more? What's more important to me? Being able to watch this movie or being able to follow Christ? Being able to listen to this musical group or obeying Christ? What's more important? Just always put it in those terms because that is, that is what Christ commands you. If they are teaching a false gospel, if they are teaching unbiblical things about Christ, about what, 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 I'm sorry, I'm so distracted by you guys. Uh, are you guys talking about something? No. Good. I, I didn't think so. All right. Okay. If they are teaching things that are outside of the truth of the gospel, say, I'm fine with leaving this behind, never listening to that again if it means I can obey Christ. Just put it in those simple terms. All right, let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you for um, this day. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for how Second John is so helpful in its shortness. We pray that we would be helped through it to be faithful to you and be protective of the, the gospel and the truth of the gospel that we have. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.